You're listening to Let's Talk About Skills, baby. I'm Kelly Ryan Bailey, and this season we're talking all about the great resignation. The global pandemic disrupted so much for so many, and one of the largest effects has been on where, when, why, and how we make a living. We're taking a look at why people have been shifting jobs, paths, and careers at such an accelerated rate, and how leaders from different industries are navigating this challenging time. Hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Skills Nerds. With me today is Fernando Rodriguez Villa. Fernando is the co-founder and chief executive officer of Adept ID. I have really been looking forward to having Fernando on the podcast. We bonded over our shared passion to make job mobility easier for everyone, regardless of their level of education. Thank you so much for joining us today, Fernando. Hi, Kelly. It's great to be here. So great to have you here. And I'm trying to even recall now, I'm like, I know we met, was it pre-pandemic? It, it was definitely during, early in the game, I would say for sure. Okay. Yeah. I mean, this time, right? Like I can't, I don't even know what day it is. <laughs> yeah, I who feel knows? Like. I mean, yeah, in, in some sort of extra dimensional space. Um, so true. Well, let's talk a little bit about this passion that we bonded over, job mobility being yep. easier for everyone. Yeah. How did you develop that passion? Oh, well, I've been incredibly fortunate in my career to move between roles that maybe only make sense in in retrospect. And I, that's true for a lot of people, for sure. But, you know, I've been able to kind of move and work in different places and in different industries. And, you know, a pattern has emerged over time where there are certainly some kind of transferable skills that you can kind of pick up. But it wasn't really clear to me along the way or, or even really, I don't think, to some of the people around me, certainly my parents included. But that's, I think, kind of in some of the introspection that I was able to to have after a, an exit from a, a venture that I was a part of, that really was kind of from my personal perspective, the thing that, that I found really interesting. And I wanted to kind of dig into ways that the technology that I had kind of picked up some familiarity with along the way could be applied to make that type of mobility easy or kind of like an option for as many people as possible. I totally hear you on not everyone necessarily understanding transferable skills. And sometimes that's also who we work with, not only our family members. Oh, yeah. And I think it's it's this kind of very kind of hidden language un underneath a lot of things. And so I think some of what, and, and we can get into this later, but I think one of the things that's really interesting about trying to apply machine learning and AI to this notion of transferable skills is that you'll end up, we might be able to surface things that are only subconscious to a lot of the kind of the stakeholders involved, whether that's the person themselves, whether that's their employer or training provider, you name it. And so I think that's the kind of that's the kind of insight that we're that, you know, I think technology can play a role in surfacing for folks. That gets me so fired up when you think about the possibilities of opening the eyes of yourself or others around you to what you're capable of. When we talk about transferable skills, or you you mentioned that throughout this journey that, and I'd love to hear even a little yeah. bit more about the journey, but if you think back about your transitions, what would you say your top three transferable skills were that kept you moving along? Oh, gosh. Um, I think th this is where people tend to, everyone's kind of have has a mixture of what would be kind of typically referred to as soft skills and then some kind of harder ones. And so I'll try to pick kind of two of the former and one of the latter. And I think certainly curiosity has been a kind of a driving force for me. And so I've kind of embraced situations where 
the stakeholders involved, the the industry, the the kind of players are new and 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 interesting to learn about. And so that curiosity definitely kind of propelled me out of investment banking and finance, which is where I started, into kind of technology applied to different problems as diverse as education, agriculture, workforce. And so that kind of curiosity has been very motivational and a kind of a skill in itself. Um, you know, another one is, I think, kind of that uh, empathy, so which is effectively like curiosity, but applied to people. And so trying to say like, okay, well, who are the people involved in different problems, challenges, spaces, which I think has helped not just kind of in trying to kind of solve the whatever the business or the strategy problem, but but also just kind of the folks that, that I get to work with. And so whether that's customers, teammates, obviously, investors or other folks where there's no kind of explicit relationship with any sort of kind of obvious gain, but really just kind of a mutual curiosity. And so I think that kind of empathy is a second one. And then the last one is those two things kind of applied to business. And so that's kind of, okay, what are the interesting, you know, commercial opportunities within an otherwise very kind of messy problem? And so that's that kind of strategic positioning, I think is is a kind of a skill that that I picked up initially applied to businesses in a very financial context as an investment banker, but subsequently in business development and product roles at companies kind of large and small since then. Very cool. So I'm hearing curiosity, empathy, and those related to what I might call like strategy. Sure. Yeah. Or yes. Positioning maybe. I don't know. Like it's, it's, it's tough. Well, so here we are like kind of living through one of the real challenges of making skills legible, which is like, how do you even describe these things in a way that, you know, people can understand or or is kind of pithy enough? Like I just gave you an incredibly long answer to, to, to a question that like, we're at Depth ID. We're trying to find ways to make that as kind of concise as possible. Um, so, which it just illustrates how, how hard this is. It's so true. I mean, we talk a lot about how technology can enable a process that really still has to have such a high human touch because there is context to a lot of this language. Yes. Yeah. And 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 I think it also gets into one of the real learnings that you know, Brian and I and, and, and other particularly kind of data scientists and, and machine learning engineers I've worked with over the years have come to, which is that really it's it's impossible to disentangle the technology from the people who are making it, which is another reason why it's so important that the people building this tech are representative and kind of are thinking through really the implications in a much more broader fashion and thinking through blind spots and all the important stuff. And so that's, I think, that's something we wrestle with on a, on a daily basis at Adept ID. And, and I think throughout the technology industry, you're seeing more people think like this, which is the technology and the people are, are really impossible to disentangle. And that's a positive too, right? Like we're, 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 we're building stuff that can empower people to do more rather than kind of obviate them. No, I totally agree. I, we're going to dig into that more. But another thing that I thought of as you were describing this, which I think you've raised some really important points, but going back to the transferable skills that you did such a beautiful job of describing to us and and really thinking through what we're going to dig into more, which is the technology human component of this. I started thinking through as you were saying that, I'm like, wow, these transferable skills, the interesting thing is, and the thing we've talked about so often is that these are not skills that you would necessarily link back to like a formal educational experience. That's right. Like all, all the really exciting things I've learned, I've learned kind of since I graduated school. That's not to say that like I, I have built incredible relationships. I was kind of turned on to all sorts of knowledge and learning, et cetera, as, as, part, of, as part of my education. So there's certainly a lot of value there. I think, you know, what, what's 
we're all we're all I think kind of as optimistically as possible looking forward to a world where it's not as kind of black and white or kind of A then B. Totally. And I think a lot of what you just said there, Fernando, was really it, it it just speaks so much to the work and and the passion that we bonded over, which yeah. is that there is actually so much entanglement and intertwinement, if you will, of this journey that is education, career, education, when I say that, not necessarily being in the formal sense. Yeah. Um, although, like you said, that can sparks so many various interests. It's just that that is something that goes on along the way. And there's so many, unfortunately, people that are left out of these amazing economic opportunities, job opportunities, because they don't have this like special stamp of mm. approval. I love that you're attempting to tackle this with such a vengeance. So yeah. I really appreciate it. So you shared a little bit about the past with you being involved in investment banking and sort of like this, tell us a little bit about how you ended up deciding that entrepreneurship, like that's the path that I'm going to take because this is not necessarily a path that is for the faint of heart. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny. I mean, like the, the way that I ended up in finance or banking also kind of reflects a certain kind of rigidity, I think, that like there's just a lot of inertia in certain schools that like is why people end up in those types of jobs or management consulting or these types of places, which are obviously they're, they're nice ways to make a living. And you certainly do, you know, learn a lot it's almost kind of like a finishing school for kind of being a professional or whatever that you can you can get uh coming out of again like certain institutions and so there's a certain amount of exclusivity that's just naturally reflected in that like i remember jake morgan came to campus and it was as simple as kind of clicking and dragging my word doc resume onto like a kind of a, a bucket on, on a web portal and then they get back to you if they want to interview you then you take a math test and you talk to a bunch of people and then you have the job and so it feels like a very kind of continuing on the conveyor belt I've got a very you know pleasant and comfortable conveyor belt but I think kind of after really a couple of years there and getting to work with some smart people and, and getting exposed to some really interesting businesses that by the time they were working with us they had they had made a lot of progress. They were doing really kind of big, important things. Pe people in that environment, I think a kind of a common path is like, you'll look and you'll see, okay, some of our clients are private equity investors or hedge funds. And it's, it's nice to kind of go and get jobs in those places. And that's certainly good for some. I think the clients that I was the most inspired by were the kind of executive founding teams that had been part of starting this company, whatever, 10 years ago, and had kind of been able to realize some of their vision for something that they wanted to exist in the world and they had built incredible relationships with each other they had kind of really kind of this that kind of creative enterprise i just found really exciting to be around and it was kind of clear that what they were doing was much more interesting than what my current day job was at the time and so the things that i was the most interested in among not just what our clients were up to but just in the world at large and the reading i was doing and the people i was starting to meet were was in the kind of the technology space and particularly technology applied to larger social problems. And so I left JP to join a company called Newton, which was uh, applying AI to education data. And they, uh, at that stage, they had built a certain amount of traction within that the, their area. They were very kind of recognized and they had support from a lot of great financial firms. And so as far as kind of stepping into entrepreneurship went, it was a fairly kind of de-risked one. And so I kind of refer to it as a bit of a kind of a gateway drug. 
into it where I was like, oh, like this, the company was, was large and based in New York, but they were just starting a London office. And I'd been living and working in London for a couple of years. And so I got to leave banking and work for, for Newton, but getting to have it both ways almost where the, the London team that was expanding in Europe and, and Africa and Asia, there were like three of us at the time. And that team grew to like 15 by the time I left. And so we kind of had a little bit of that experience of kind of early stage entrepreneurship, but there was also the mothership in New York that was making sure that we had what we needed to kind of build out the office and, you know, fly wherever we needed to and, and, and some kind of brand recognition there. And then that, that was kind of a first step. And once I moved back to Boston with, with my now wife, when she was starting grad school, I knew that I wanted to go a little earlier stage because I looked around and said like, man, like, wouldn't it have been more exciting to be involved a little bit earlier where we could have made some of the decisions that we learned had some downstream consequences. I wanted to, to be involved earlier where I could kind of work across product and think about operations and think about fundraising and all the kind of the things that you get to do if you're at a really early stage company working cross-functionally. So that was the step that took me to Boston and eventually to TELUS Labs. And I remember Newton. So I'm like, it's just so funny that I've, I've, I don't think we've ever mm. even chatted about that in your history. <laughs> no, I mean, what a what an eye opening experience in in so many ways. Newton had um, Newton was was really remarkable, and I think kind of articulating what adaptive learning could be and bringing it, I think, into a kind of a mainstream discussion in a way that. It didn't seem like it had been that way beforehand. And just the quality of the both technical and business talent that they were able to bring around the table was really remarkable. And a lot of the folks that work there are off doing interesting stuff now across not just kind of ed and workforce tech, but have gone into back into the kind of the big tech, uh, big tech players. Yeah. I laughed when you described it as the gateway <laughs> drug version of entrepreneurship, but it's, it, it is an, it, it is a different experience. And so- yeah. Right now, obviously, collectively, we're going through this moment that has been coined the great resignation. And there's a lot of people that are thinking about what does my personal, professional future look like? And maybe they're considering that yeah. entrepreneurship might be a path for them. If you could give someone advice that might be sitting at this that moment that you were that was like, ah, this is where I want to yeah. go, what would you suggest? Well, I think you're right to kind of characterize it as it's it's not as binary as like, okay, you're either going to wear like a short sleeve button down and like go into your corporate job nine to five, or you're going to quit and move to get your best friend together and like hang out in a garage and kind of throw around ideas. Like there's, there's like, those are kind of like extremes. And the reality is there are a lot of things you could do in between the two that are entrepreneurial or, you know, or creative maybe is another way to kind of describe it. And I think, you know, what, what's an exciting thing that's happening now is that people are really kind of asking themselves, like, is this the, like the real expression of myself that I want out of a job, out of my, the thing that I end up spending most of my time doing. And I think it's awesome that people generally speaking are trying to kind of find more creative outlets or and more entrepreneurial outlets. And so I, I would, I think the reality is there's almost kind of an inverse amount of kind of whatever fear or trepidation in those. And so like, I'd, I'd urge people to kind of like understand that that is a bit of a trade-off of kind of the, the the kind of the inevitable anxiety and uncertainty that comes with trying new things. But for me, I, I went from Newton, which was uh, mature, kind of well-funded, fairly stable, at least at the time, and then kind of moved to Telus Labs, which was very small. And we were, we were modestly successful over a two-year period and ended up getting acquired, which was awesome. And then spent some time at the company that bought us, which was larger and 
again, surrounded by smart people, definitely validated, definitely a different different pace. But I realized that I, I really like really enjoyed early stage much more. And so and that, and that was a lot of what precipitated me leaving Indigo and, and, and ultimately starting Adept ID because this was kind of this is the phase of trying to figure things out despite all the kind of the uncertainty and anxiety that is a part of that. Because that's the trade that I kind of realized that I, I'm happy to make. And so I think everyone should probably figure out where they fit along that spectrum and not be afraid to try it out. I think one of the things that's exciting, and this is like with a huge caveat, that's, and this is what Adept.id is all about, is that like some people have this luxury more than others, which is just a really unfortunate fact of the labor market right now. But if you're someone who has the opportunity to try things that might involve more risk or that might involve a little bit more creativity, like being able to, to actually kind of push yourself to do that so that you can find where you fit along this spectrum. I, I just have a lot of respect for that. And particularly if you can do that in a way that improves the, the situation for, for others. I'd cheer them on. If you have people who are thinking about this, who are listening to this right now and you want to talk to me about it, like, please, please reach out. Oh, that's so kind of you. It, it, it is. I love how you describe it as this spectrum, right? Because I think most people do. I th- that's it's just there's so many things in life that we think are this or that. It has to be one way or the other. And there's just actually so much in between and maybe even like the I always say like, and yes, <laughs> because there could be multiple versions of this. And in terms of this conversation that we're having, I would even say is a lot about mobility in yeah. general. And there's, this is not a linear path. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that's the good news is that that's changing in a positive direction for individuals, generally speaking, right? Like I think what, what happened maybe if you look at kind of my my career, where in a relatively short amount of time, I've been able to have a set of employers. And in Adept.id's case, I've you know, been my own employer versus maybe 40, 50 years ago, where the expectation is you get a specific job, typically after you know college, if you're a knowledge worker, or after high school, if you're working in the working for one of our many great you know, manufacturing companies. Um, and like, that's just your job until you retire. And I think that, that that's clearly changed and there's been a lot of kind of adapting in the whatever the quote unquote knowledge worker segment for, for folks like me, but that, that is kind of starting to change for everyone else, which is really encouraging because it's been, it's been, it's been helpful in me finding more fulfillment in work. And I know for colleagues and, and folks in my cohort. And so, you know, hopefully this is a, a tailwind for more people to be able to find fulfillment. I hope so too. Well, let's dive in a little bit more to this sort of wicked challenge, if you will, of job mobility. I mean, it has so many layers, right? We've got everything from how people are navigating within an organization to maybe there is some spectrum of entrepreneurship to the winding journey in and out of education and various employment, even economic development efforts within specific regions. When with Adept ID, because there's so many layers of this, what Mm -hmm. problem are you guys really focused on? Yeah. So the way we describe it is it's the matching problem, right, between talent, demand and training. And so what we're doing is we're trying to take inconsistent or sparse information about individuals, organizations and roles and infer a whole lot of connections there that we can use to kind of predict the success, again, with success being pretty flexibly defined, but the success of that individual in a range of different contexts, and then you know empower 
the individual, the organization, often the training provider with options and kind of pathways for how people can get to different places. I think this is kind of the complexity and the wickedness of the problem. But what's neat is that there are examples of similarly messy, fuzzy, whatever word you want to call it, matching problems being solved in other spaces. And and been a helpful tailwind there is that there's been a lot of kind of commercial incentive for Netflix to figure out how to recommend movies to you or Amazon to send you the right books or you know Stitch Fix to send you the right clothing items in their boxes. And the good news is Brian, my my co-founder, has like done a ton of research in that space and applied it in a couple of industrial contexts. And so when him and I really sat down and started looking at this problem, we realized that there were some opportunities to apply what had been successful recommendation approaches in other spaces to this one that were able to embrace the kind of complexity and messiness of it. It's perfect. And and cool. honestly, I think those analogies, again, not everyone that is familiar with this problem may understand the complexity. But when you bring in those analogies of, I always joke and say, I want to make sure that Alexa can understand the voice of my six-year-old, right? I mean, but there's yeah. like all varying versions of this that we think of or use every day. And now it's just applying it to employment and training. And we have all different words for those things in our industry that might get a little bit confusing. And the acronyms don't even get me started. But we're not going to (laughs) go into those. We're going to keep it simple. (laughs) We Yeah. Like where we try to kind of our North Star is talent. Right. And so it's like, oh, like, are you a learning company, an HR tech company or whatever? It's like, no, 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 we're, we're building talent technology. Right. And the good news is talent means something to the talent itself, to the individuals who are looking for fulfilling work. It means something to employers who have talent is now like the big thing that absolutely everyone needs, everyone, including Adept ID. But but this is it this has kind of become everyone's imperative is to kind of solve talent, make talent legible. Which like like what could be a more interesting question to work on? Like it's just it's a really motivating thing to to spend your day and and maybe more than a fair portion of your evenings thinking about. I bet. And I, I when you think of people in this equation and helping them navigate, we went back to earlier in our discussion, you kind of teased to us a little bit about this underlying technology that's enabling the movement of people through their crazy winding career path. And yeah. I really want to push on saying it that way as opposed sure. to it doesn't have to be one way, right? Yeah, yeah. But there is te- this technology that is that you guys are working on that is enabling this process. And and we've chatted a lot about things like ethical applications of mm-hmm. artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. transparency in how it's being used, And even like how it's tactically being applied that I really would love to dig into. Again, for those that might even be coming to this anew, right? And also for organizations that are like, what does this all mean? Yeah. (laughs) So, oh man, I guess, I guess maybe a quick point on kind of what our, what our approach is. And then that kind of segues into some of the implications for for how we try to do it the right way or think about it responsibly. I think on the one hand, right, we are looking at, in order to do that inference of, okay, we have a little bit of information on what someone's job was before, but we want to infer, okay, well, what are the skills that they probably have because of that? For that, we use 
a set of skills taxonomies of people might also say in skills ontology, which is basically a list of here are all the possible jobs, here are all the possible skills. These are the skills tagged to the different jobs. This is how we make that inference. You can use that relatively out of the box to say, okay, here's any job A and B, and then what is the quote unquote distance in some high dimensional space of skills between them? That's not done nearly as much as it should, right? Like not, not, not enough employers think that way, not enough training providers do, et cetera. But like one of the challenges, if you look at that, is you're only really as good at, at inference as the list of skills is and the list of jobs is. And so what you'll end up with is a taxonomy that is probably wrong for some reason, but then gets staler over time as the nature of skills changes and the types of jobs change. And so a lot of the kind of quote unquote off the shelf taxonomies that you'll find and I'll pick on them, but like, I really think that they do great stuff. But like, like an ONET, for example, which is a government source, like that doesn't have a lot of jobs that are really interesting in the 21st century. It doesn't have a lot of skills that are relevant. The skills for a typical manufacturing job right now are just way more digital in nature than they were 10 years ago. And if you're looking at just one of those taxonomies over time, it gets very stale. And so it's, it, you, you kind of have some base error that like gets bigger and bigger over time. Whereas on, on the one hand, you could try to kind of manually be improving that regularly. What we use, and this is a technique that gets borrowed from a couple of other approaches, is to say, okay, we're actually not going to pick a single taxonomy. We're going to try to append as, as many of them as we can to each other and then let the kind of the outcomes decide which of the skills are predictive in which instances. And so the outcomes are basically information on, okay, this is a person who attempted to go from job A to job B and was successful or not. Did they get the job that they applied for? Did they stay in it for a while? Did they... Did they get promoted, all of these kind of really interesting questions of the real crazy winding paths that people take between roles. And if you have enough of that information, enough of those outcomes data, then you can use it to start to kind of highlight and surface, which are the kind of the latent skills that are more, more or less predictive. Again, this isn't a particularly novel approach, works in other sectors. There's certainly other people applying it to skills too, which is great. But anytime you're building a model that is based on outcomes, on anything that's happened historically, then you naturally run the risk of the model just perpetuating whatever the like biases or frailties that might have led to the results being one way or another. There are practices for how you can build and, and partly out outcomes-based models. And that's, that's kind of how we try to characterize our approach as being outcomes and skills-based in the way that we're making recommendations. There is a bit of a playbook for how you can get the benefits of using outcomes while understanding some of the kind of the inevitable biases and potentially unintended consequences. And so that just involves like really rigorous attention to what the data is that you're training on, testing it against protected classes of data to see if there is disparate impact, and then utilizing where possible configurability and saying, okay, well, like we've identified a bias here, how can we mitigate it? And, and like what helps all of this is transparency, right? Like we have to be super transparent about like how it works, what it's doing for them, et cetera. I think that also inspires confidence in our partners, but it's also like the the ultimate fallback when there are things that we don't know. So just kind of making that that transparent to people is is essential. And I like I really think this generation of kind of call it AI or ML companies has much more of an imperative than maybe the prior generation did to be transparent about how they're using AI. I think the market's getting a little bit more savvy when someone says like, "Oh, like you should buy us because we have AI." Like people are starting to say like like why? <laughs> Or like, how are you, how are you using AI? Like, like tell us a little bit more. And I, I've, I've kind of compared this to like where, 
I don't know, like cars used to be 30 or 40 years ago, where like, you know, Volvo built an entire brand out off of safety features. Now no one buys a car without really looking at like, well, does it have not just anti-lock brakes, but also lane assist and automatic braking and, you know, adjusted kind of cruise control, all these like really cool safety features that are coming on and are just just requirements for purchasing a car. I think that's kind of that's that's working its way into the way that people think about machine learning or AI driven products. I love to hear that more people are getting interested in this. And it and and I think for some people, when they hear this information, it feels a bit technical. So I want to break down two pieces of what you just said, especially for our audience, because I think it's really important to understand this. Let's go back to the analogy for a second that I mentioned with Alexa, right? The reason why it's so important to understand how that system is being able to understand my six-year-old, you have to recognize, right? What type of people have the ability to own Alexa? Mm -hmm. They probably mm -hmm. also have to have internet. They have to be able to afford that. Who has enabled Alexa to actually learn from their voice? Because that is an option, right? Yes. So you have to start thinking through like what is coming into this system and how it's being trained. And then like you described, the people that are actually originating these models, you have to think through, are they a certain type of people that ha might have a certain type of belief in the way that they've created this from the beginning? And you could easily see when you think about it in that very simple context, you know, how it would be different if, let's say, we focused on like one population <laughs> yeah. or one language versus this sort of like holistic or organic approach. And I always like to say that because I think it's important to understand. We often think like, oh, the the tech people at our org will figure that out. And yeah. I just get the information to make whatever decision I need to make. But the thing is, if you don't have a basic understanding of the complexities around like data is information that, again, like we described, it's it's enabling a better decision than you would have without that information. Mm -hmm. But it's not necessarily this end all be all like there's intricacies and you don't have to be the technical person but the understanding of how that's working i think is a really important piece that we're talking about here yeah i mean the there's an interesting observation around technology generally which is that like once it exists and reaches a certain amount of like kind of adoption then it like people stop really describing it as futuristic. And so like, if you look at a lot of the way, you know, I mean, just like think about how magic your phone is, like, or just like what, what a version of yourself 10 years ago would have thought if they saw you playing around with it, right? And now it's just kind of become so common. And, and I think that's, that's actually what we've watched. Like a lot of the forms of AI that no longer market themselves as AI, right? Like a search engine or whatever, like, or translation or navigation on your phone, like all that stuff, there's a ton of AI in it. And it just doesn't occur to those people to say like, oh, like use this because there's AI, like it's just, it's just kind of like in it. And so I think like we're at this point of kind of adopting certain technologies that like we we're now kind of starting to interrogate them a little bit more for the kind of the functionality and, and, the, and the implications, which is good. I think for people to responsibly start using this technology, there does need to be a, a greater kind of level of, of understanding, like being able to being able to say, OK, the reason why you should care about this part of the technology is X is an incredible skill. I wish I had more of it. And but the, the people out there who have it like are, are, are very invaluable. Totally. It is such a it's a such a hard one. Well, I want to take a minute because Adept ID just celebrated a pretty big milestone at the end of 2021. You guys closed your first external round of funding. 
how does it feel? It's it's good. I think generally speaking, we've we've moved from a place of more kind of like existential questions around like, will anyone care that we're working on this? Or like, this was like this time last year, it was just Brian and I. And very first partnerships were saying like, yeah, like we're not actually really sure how this thing works, but it seems like working with you guys is going to teach us a little bit about it. And like, you seem to be well-intentioned. And so like some people really took a bet on us early before we had external funding as customers, teammates, advisors, et cetera. And like those people, I just like, can't say enough wonderful things about, but that, that was a really existential moment. Now it feels like we're more in an execution mode, which is very stressful, but in a different way. Like with so many of these things, like the ultimate fallback bedrock foundation of making sure that the technology is being built the right way, that the business is being built the right way is to pick the right partners. And so Asir and Andy and the team at Zeal, Lindsay and the team at Better, like the, the folks, you know, Yigal and JFF, like as investors, they're folks who have the right amount of kind of faith in, in what we're working on. And I think want it to work for the right reasons, which uh, one of the advantages of being a private company is you actually do get to pick your investors. So totally. it also makes me, it means we can swing a little bit bigger. Last year, we were able to come to some kind of modest profitability and fund the team growth that we were doing. But it was clear that the scale of the problem here needed some real investment. So finding the right partners is, has been very empowering in that way, too. That is so cool. Whenever I hear someone talk about finding the right funders and sort of this new, I mean, really like a social impact focus, not that the business being successful yeah. financially is not also important, but I often think about, I have kids, so I watch a lot of Disney movies. Tangled is one of like the movies that I've seen on repeat so long. And there's this one scene that makes me laugh every time when they go through this like bar scene of everyone singing their song about what their dream is. And Flynn Rider, the one character is like, I just want to make a bunch of money and live on an island by myself. <laughs> and everyone else has this like awesome, really like amazing dream that's yeah. going to change their lives and everybody and else's life. He's got his, yeah. I mean, there, there, there are some people who want that if they can... If they can find a way to do it without unintentionally harming others, then power to them. But but no, I think one of the, the part of the journey that Brian and I have gone on and the Adept ID team has gone on is that we, we uh, not, not only do we think that I think we can aspire to something more as entrepreneurs and capitalists, but that I think there is a convergence that like the, the bigger, most interesting problems are also going to be, I think, the most impactful ones. And being able to align something you want to have happen in the world with your personality, with your business model, with the kind of the day-to-day -day thing that you spend your life doing, like if all of those can kind of collaborate and not be counterproductive, then like you're, you're in a really fortunate place. I love that. I think that's about to be a quote from this oh, okay. <laughs> recording. Um, so I wanted to talk really quickly about you're also this business owner that is hiring, yep. right? And how, what are the approaches that you've taken to create the culture and hiring process that's in line with what you're hoping other organizations can, this is what you're sort yeah. of like out there talking about, right? Well, so what we really want to get to and a real inflection point for us, I think will be when we can start using our own models for our own hiring. That would be pretty cool. I think right now we could do it as a fun exercise, but kind of the, the hiring process is, is maybe a bit more old fashioned than where we think it could get to. A lot of what we talked about, about making sure that the kind of the people building the technology reflect what you want the technology to do has translated into some of our early approaches. There are all sorts of reasons why that's a, we think that's the right strategy, but primarily is that like what we want to kind of have the team reflect the kind of the multiple pathways into these types of technology industry jobs. And we have a mix, right? We've got folks who've been 
fortunate to get doctorates from some of the fancier schools in the world. And we have folks who haven't gone to college. And that number is roughly, I think it's a little over 25% of, of the team right now, which is a kind of, I think, a little where we want to keep it. Maybe we want to grow that a little bit. And I think that the, the key part is to keep the voices around the table are, are keeping us honest in that respect. And I think some of there, there are all sorts of kind of forms of flexibility that we've seen work in the models and the data with our partners, like removing, obviously removing degree requirements is a no-brainer, frankly, but removing geographic requirements has helped too. And I think those are kind of very simple tactical things that like sure have implications for like, well, how do we bring the team together physically every once in a while, which everyone seems to you know enjoy. And I certainly appreciate how do we kind of foster kind of the culture of a growing company where we all know each other and trust each other. But these are exciting problems to work on. And I think, you know, we've been fortunate again, and that the, the people we've brought in have all been such strong fits from a kind of motivation perspective. There's just a, there's a great self-selection that goes on where like the people who might not be a great culture fit tend not to want to work with us. So that's like easy. Like, it's like we, we tend not to have situations where we're having to turn that down. Maybe that would happen if we get to a certain level of whatever notoriety or, or kind of visibility. But like right now, like for people, the, the people who want to join are people who like are going to be really great fits. Um, so that we've been lucky in that respect. No, and you guys have really approached it, I think, you know, from the outside in a strategic fashion, making sure that you're really getting different voices around the table, which I yeah. think is is always an important part. Oh, and there's and there's so much more work to be done, right? There are like there are communities that I think in the world that we want to we want to be able to kind of build technology to support that we haven't been able to reflect yet in the in the company and certainly in the leadership team. I think that's where candidly that that's that's harder for different companies versus others. And you know, I think we're we're working on that and and I think it's it's like like making sure that our models conform to our ethics, et cetera, like all this stuff, there's no like there's no situation where it's like, all right, we like fixed that problem and it's done now. Right. Or like, or like we kind of like solved inclusion and representativeness in our workforce. Like that, that that's never like work that's done. It's always ongoing for sure. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, I have one more question for you. And I'd really like you to give me just like the first thought that comes to your mind when I ask this question. It does not have to be professional or personal. It doesn't matter. If you could wave a magic wand and have one wish come true, what would it be? Oh man. So, so this is kind of two parts, right? I, I want everyone to be, I would like everyone to be doing for work something that they find gives them joy and fulfillment. For most people, that's a question. There are a lot of external factors that influence that, right? And so part of what Adept ID is doing is it's trying to kind of create or play a role in an ecosystem that allows everyone to be able to find and be, succeed in fulfilling work. But there's a segment of folks that are in the workforce right now who actually have more of the capacity to find fulfilling work than they might be aware of. And so I think for them, I would wish that they just feel a little bit more kind of confidence in taking that step. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Fernando, for joining us today. You guys definitely want to keep up with Fernando. He is available on LinkedIn at Fernando Rodriguez hyphen via or Twitter at F. Rodriguez Villa and Adept ID is available on all of the socials. Definitely go out and check them all out. Keep in line with what they're doing. I have a feeling we're going to be hearing some pretty big things again at the end of this year. Well, I, I hope so. And I think a lot of how we've tried to set up the business and the product and the team is, is an inherently collaborative model. And so, you know, we really 
So please get in touch. I look forward to working with you all. Thank you so much. Hope you all have a great day. Thanks for tuning in to Let's Talk About Skills, Baby, a Growth Network podcast production. If any part of this episode resonated with you, we would love for you to share it with a friend or colleague who might feel the same. Feel free to reach out to me at Kelly Ryan Bailey on social and learn more about the great events and initiatives we have coming up at skillsbaby.com. Thanks again for spending some time with me. And most importantly, have a great day.